Well, speaking of the, uh, the Declaration of uh, Independence and fireworks and such, by the way, how many men, just be honest, how many men like blowing up things and, and fireworks? How many men do? Okay, this is just a little marketing test. How many women like to do that? A couple. Okay, well, there you go. Very good. Well, you're going to have a great time in the next couple of days then. Well, announced on July 4th, 1776, the Declaration of Independence was actually signed on August 2nd, 1776. And actually, the final signature on the Declaration of Independence was added in the late November. July 2nd, today, was actually the day in history that the completed declaration was uh, actually accepted. And uh, some delegates uh, believed that it would be this day that would become the important day in history. But then on July 4th of 1776, they had that scheduled meeting to discuss the declaration, but it was cut short, probably because some people wanted to go off and go home on their picnics, right? Delegates agreed to the wording and principle before adjourning that day. Then July 8th, it was published for the very first time. There was one signature on it. Whose signature? John Hancock. And why did he write so big? Do you guys know, little guys, do you know why he wrote so big? Because he didn't have glasses? No, that's really not true. He, he wrote so big because he wanted to be sure that King James could read it. And why was it important that King James could read it? He wanted them to know that they were declaring freedom. Now, if this is in fact the way it is, what's the problem that they had with King James, of course? Well, freedom uh, actually the king that they wanted him. King James it was rather instead that was the reason that the pilgrims and the Puritans at the time uh, were resisting King James. Anyway, uh, let's kind of go back in time. Let's look at the declaration for a moment. Uh, oh, by the way, never were all the signers in one place at one time. Never. And uh, if you look at the second paragraph, not the first of the declaration, this is the way it reads. Look at that. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness, and that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it, and to institute new government, laying its foundations on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and their happiness. Now, if you actually pull up the copy of the Declaration of Independence, what then followed was this list of grievances that they had against Great Britain and the king. Quite an interesting list, if you haven't read it for a while, just to go back and go, wow, look at all the things that they were trying to declare their freedom from. And then, of course, we have the famed ending to the Declaration, as they said, and for the support of this Declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. There is a piece that has circulated for years. I'm not sure of the complete accuracy of it, um, depending on if you look at some websites like Snopes, they kind of question maybe some of the historical detail, but Paul Harvey did a wonderful piece years ago called We Mutually Pledge, where he talked about what happened to the signers of the Declaration 
and in fact, the cost of freedom. But you know, that wasn't the original declaration of people wanting to be free. In fact, we can go way back in time, back, 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 back. In fact, let's go back to the very start of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Let's take a look at this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, oh, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. And then she added, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she did what? She took up the fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was standing with her and apparently didn't know any better, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves into loincloths. You see what has happened here? The initial freedom that they had was to eat anything from that garden and probably just have all the fun basically you want. There was no big heavy set of rules that God put on these people. They had an awful lot of freedom. Just one thing. Kind of like Columbo, for those of you that remember Columbo. Oh, one more thing. Yeah, just one thing. Don't, don't eat of this one tree. And they just couldn't resist. And the evil one put them there, tempting them with this idea that you need to be free. Few authors uh, that I have read have created a better picture of this then uh, from a book that came out, now it's been uh, several years ago, Behind the Glittering Mask by Mark Rutland. Mark was a pastor, I think, when he wrote it, went on to become, I think, the president of a Christian college for a while. Behind the Glittering Mask tells the story of what is essentially a visit by two supernatural beings, the Archangel Michael and Gabriel excuse me, not Gabriel, the Archangel Michael and the evil one, which is Lucifer in this case. So you have these two competing views, the Archangel Michael and Lucifer, and they show up with this at this professor's house and they begin to dialogue over the seven deadly sins. And the argument being raised by Lucifer along the way is, is that, you see, the problem is you've got this tyrant, that's what he refers to him as, this tyrant who rules over you. And really what you need is freedom. And this is the way he began to make, construct his argument. I felt it my holy duty and calling to illumine this man, Adam, as he lay in darkness. What greater darkness can grip any being than that of being in a loathsome prison house whose walls limit him on every hand, while thinking himself to be free in a garden of blessings? The tyrant's lies made Adam and Eve the principal lotus eaters. They knew absolutely nothing about real life. They strolled the blossom trails of Eden like babes in a pram. Unawakened to themselves, they allowed the tyrant to be the center 
of their clean little cupboard. Adam and Eve could never have been truly happy in the garden. They were buried by nauseating, cloying selflessness. Self-consciousness is the key to true happiness. How can I be happy unless I am conscious that I am being made happy? The primary couple's willingness to live in the tyrant's garden and abide by his rules would have denied them the world into which I led them. The struggle for liberation in Eden was actually a fight for humanity's right to be in the God garden of its own. I labor unceasingly, even until now, to carry on this struggle among the children of Adam. Teenagers who must be taught that generosity to parents is a trap in societies profoundly influenced by the tyrant. Young people may be misled by thoughts of a mother's labors during their infancy. Let me give you an example. Let's take some infirm mother, wheelchair bound. Let us make the scene as pointed as possible in order to see the lethal power of guilt. Please take me to the grocery store, she says. Oh, let her be kind and gentle in her request. The point is not how she asks, but that the boy's will must respond. Can't you go alone? You always do, he answers. Yes, she responds. Downcast. I can but I'm tired tonight and it is very wearying what with my wheelchair and all. It is at this point that I must teach the lad moral toughness. If he allows himself to be overly touched by her plight, he will lose sight of himself. The crucial point is not weighing her need against his desire. His desire is his, therefore any duty to others is idolatry. He must be liberated from all rules, all law, all restrictions, all relationships. One cannot relate to others and truly be a God. My point is simply that I freed Adam and Eve from mindless submission to the tyrant's dominion in Eden. So I will use any and all tactics to free others thus bound. My real goal is not the advancement of godless communism or the fashioning of a new generation of druids. My main objective is to shake men and women free to become gods. To do this, I must convince them of the same things that proved effective in liberating Adam and Eve. This then becomes our lifelong challenge. That we desire this freedom, we want the pursuit of freedom, and ultimately, if we're not careful, it becomes freedom from God. Freedom of the right to rule. Fundamentally, we're tempted to rebel. We seek independence, and we seek it from God. You know, there are some posters back in the 1960s. I'm going to put up a couple of those here for you. There's, what does bohemian me. Now I want you to look at some of the words here. Eccentric, offbeat, artistic, exotic, radical, free spirit, oddball, hippie, bizarre, gypsy, unconventional, wild. Now these, this is the mindset, by the way, of people that lived through the 60s. I'm one of those people. I remember this kind of stuff. And then you have the one off to the right. I have always considered myself a free spirit with a gypsy soul. Surrendering gratefully 
to wherever life takes me. There was that open arms idea again of freedom, whatever it looks like. And then there was the 1980s song, making us a little more contemporary, Everybody Wants to Rule the World. Some of you may remember this. It's my own desire. You might even sing along if you can remember it. It's my own remorse. Help me to decide. Help me make the most of freedom and of pleasure. Nothing ever lasts forever. Of course it does. Everybody wants to rule the world. Just like Mark Rutland said, as he pointed out, that the evil one today tempts us with the same. You have a right to be God, your own God. No restrictions. Free as a bird to do whatever you want. Rejection of God is actually based in our desire to be our own God. If I admit there's a God, if I come to the conclusion there is a creator, he has a right to rule. The evil one taunts us consistently to move away from God and be free. Know this, says the scriptures, you have an adversary. Indeed we do. And it is an adversary, by the way, who champions your rebellion. He leads the resistance to God. He wants you in bondage, not in freedom. I said the title of my message is The Perils of Freedom. And peril number one is pursuing freedom as we pursue it, unaware of the resistance that is being led against us. Well, obviously, that doesn't work. And we know this because we have children and teenagers. And we know that we thus need to lead and give boundaries in life. And we know that we have to live within boundaries as well. In the Garden of Eden, how many boundaries? Just one. Don't eat of this. In Exodus, God introduces us to the Big Ten. We're not talking about the, the football uh, league here now. Uh, and, and, of course, he gave a number of other rules, some 600 as far as rules for living. The purpose of the law was what? To set boundaries. Michael Horton, a terrific theologian, has written an excellent book on the Ten Commandments, and the title of the book is The Law of Perfect Freedom. Because when we learn to live within the boundaries, we actually learn, really, how to live with freedom properly. The consequences of Israel, turning away from God, turning outside of those boundaries are legendary time and time again until they were finally taken away in captivity after all those blessings that God had promised them. Let's play this out in real life. Okay, does anybody here happen? You don't have to raise your hand. You maybe got a 15-year-old about to turn 16. What is the 16-year-old going to want to do? Get their driver's license. And your important role as a parent who believes in freedom is to tell your son or daughter, you don't have to have any speed limit. You just drive any speed you want. If you come up to a stop sign, don't stop if you don't want to. By the way, if you're doing something you shouldn't be doing and maybe hit a car, don't stop. Just keep going. I mean, we could, we could come up with a whole interesting list of these things because they're free to do whatever they want. Now, the only reason that there's some laughter within the room is because we all know that that's absurd. We know that there have to be boundaries, and it starts at the early uh, stage. 
don't take your brother's toys. Just don't do that. We have a boundary here that we're going to not pass. As we get older, as we become adults, we have more boundaries that we begin to set. We need boundaries in relationships. You don't talk that way to your spouse. You don't act that way. We need these boundaries. Can we still be free? Sure. But we have to live within the boundaries of life. Freedom is not the absence of boundaries. Peril of freedom, number two. Pursuing freedom while ignoring necessary boundaries. While boundaries are important for us, here's the interesting thing and the irony of it all. God wants you free. If you're reading your Bible and you go through the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 3 says in verse 17, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. John 8, 36, So if the Son sets you free, you will be, and many of you could complete the sentence, free indeed. 1 Corinthians 6, 12, listen to this, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. Ah, boundaries. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You, my brothers and sisters, in Galatians 5, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then. Do not let yourself be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Even the psalmist in Psalm 119 said, I will walk in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. In Romans 8, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated. Not just you and I. All of creation will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. Those are just a few select verses. You could find several others. The real freedom that God offers is freedom from and freedom to. And what is it that's the freedom from? Well, we know it has to do with the freedom from sin. We know also it's freedom from sin's eternal consequences. We know we have free from the, the, the punishment of sin, but we also have freedom from the power of sin. We have freedom from hopelessness and despair. We have a purpose for living. And ultimately, again, freedom from death, which is one of the main things that people fear most. We have a freedom from that as we put our faith in Christ. God wants us free. He also wants us to be free of the love of. You could fill in the words after that. The love of money, the love of addictions, whatever one happens to have. And then there's the freedom from. Freedom from, again, again pain and loss and enemies and so on. So what are we freed to? In Galatians 5.22, we read, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Your spiritual freedom came at a cost. 
in Colossians 1. We read, starting in verse 21, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Those are powerful words to you and I, that we have that kind of freedom. And by the way, that freedom also enables us to approach the very throne of the Almighty in confidence. In fact, Ephesians 3.12 says it this way, In Him and through Him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. When I was living in Pittsburgh back in the 1990s, it was my, my first year in talk radio, and within the first, I don't know, must have been the first year I was on the air there, I, um, I ran into a guy uh, as an interview named Jerry Biederman. Jerry Biederman had written a book called Secrets of a Small Town. And uh, what he did was he climbed into his car and he headed to, and he wouldn't, he wouldn't uh, reveal the destination, but he headed to a, a small town. And uh, what he was searching for, and it was a town of about 5,000, by the way, that he landed in, was, was a town whose inhabitants would reveal to him their most intimate secrets. That's an interesting thing. He's an anonymous person just basically sits down with you and says, here's what I'm doing, I'm writing about this, no one will ever know the town, no, no one will ever know your name, but is there anything that you have kept hidden that you do not want anyone else or have not let anyone else know about? Well, as it turned out, uh, he found quite a few takers on this, thus, thus the book. Uh, one woman admitted that she was a ghost vocalist for well-known singers had never been revealed. A 35-year-old housewife confessed that she was nearly arrested in a telephone credit card scandal several years earlier. An aerobics instructor said that years ago when he was a lifeguard, he once slipped a laxative into the coffee of a colleague he disliked. Many confessions were horrible, some too dangerous to publish. For instance, two people said they had knowledge about murders. Some also were about drug abuse. And Biederman said he was overwhelmed with secrets about moral failures and related extreme behaviors. And he was intrigued by people who carried enormous guilt from childhood. Richard, a 47-year-old civil engineer, confessed, I stole some pencils. The guy's 47 years old. I stole some pencils once, and I, it must have been in the fourth grade, and I, it was six pencils, and I took them out of a drugstore, and I walked out, and I didn't get caught. But I felt like, OMG, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to hell, and I'm going to burn for a million years. I just felt so bad. There was this judgmental, authoritarian God out there who would make you pay whether you got caught or not. He lived with this a good part of his life. And he'd never shared it with anyone that he'd taken these pencils. I decided to play off that. And I said on the air, you know, if you are 
finding yourself in that kind of bondage and you want to you want to deal with it give me a call or actually send me an email and I'd be glad to meet with you and see if we can't relieve that from your conscience I had three takers all men thank the Lord and I'm not going to talk about the first two for time's sake uh, but I will share very briefly uh, about the third uh, we met at a hotel and we're having breakfast together and uh, he was very upset and I said so so what is bothering you he said, I, I, I don't know this is very hard for me to talk about I said I understand but do, do you want to keep going he said yeah I'll, I'll keep going and he said my wife has accused me of a terrible thing okay what could it be my wife has accused me of, and for the sake of the audience in the room, uh, grossly misbehaving with our children. And you can read between the lines. And she has told people at our church this, and she has told friends this. And it's just ruining my relationships. So he shared this very transparent, vulnerable moment and I let him go on for a few more moments and all of a sudden it began to work in my mind and my soul and finally I just couldn't take it anymore and I looked at the guy I mentioned him by name and I said well did you and there was this pause and there was this acknowledgement that he did and we had the ensuing conversation about, well, do you want to be free or not? And I laid out for him a course that most of us would not follow. Most of us in the, this room, while not having maybe the same level of offense, would not follow as well. I said, do you want to be free? You need to confess this. First to God, to your wife, and to your pastor. He said, what's going to happen is, I can be put in jail. I understand. Do you want to be free? We finished our breakfast, and, uh, and away he went. And uh, about three weeks later, I got another email from him saying, I did exactly what you said and I got exactly the consequences that I expected and I'm going to be spending time uh, in jail for a period of time and of course you know the restrictions that the government will put on about the future of his relationships with family members permanent at least as permanent as those things can be now you know what they put him behind some metal pieces of a jail cell locked behind there but he wrote in the email but I have to tell you I'm free what can people do to me it's out there this is why the Lord God encourages us to confess this is why we have a prayer of confession at least on Sundays here needs to be more consistent in our lives. 
The peril of freedom that we have, the third peril of freedom is pursuing freedom while underestimating its cost. Romans 6.22 says, By now, but now, that you have been set free from sin and you have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and in its end, eternal life. Our second text for today reads, Live as people who are free, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but live as servants of God. As we wrap up our time today, the question remains, what do you need freedom from today? What do you need freedom to? Jesus came and died to make men and women free. And in facing the perils of freedom, we must embrace what Jesus said, the truth. Because as Jesus has taught us, the truth will make us free. And that freedom, with that, <laughs> you will be free indeed. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great gift of freedom. We have so much freedom, and in this country we have, we have freedoms that we sometimes undervalue. We have freedom in our spiritual life to do so many things. And yet, Father, we often abuse our freedom. We use it for self. We do the very thing that the tyrant wants us to. He throws up the resistance to you and calls that freedom. Lord God, we ask that you would free our souls from whatever holds us back from an open relationship with you. And if necessary, to the degree that we can with others. Give us the wisdom and discernment to do that if needed. And from that, may our souls find freedom in your truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.